Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. I'm going to invite you to be getting your Bibles out, be following along in that passage and the other passages that we'll be reading and studying from this morning. As we open up God's Word and allow God to speak to us for these next few minutes, we've spoke to God for the last little bit through song and through prayer, and now we want to allow Him to do the talking through the pages of His book. 1 Corinthians, chapter 11 is where that's all going to begin. It is great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. It's a beautiful morning. It's uh, kind of muggy and it's, it's summer now. Uh, that's to be expected, but the sun is out. And uh, Hattie commented as we were pulling out of the driveway, at least toward the south, she said, the sky is so blue this morning, and it was. And so uh, we're thankful to God for that and thankful to be able to be together here upon the first day of the week to, to tell God how great He is for the things that He's done for us. In 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, I want to read here in verse number 1 to get us started. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 1, there Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. One of the very best ways to learn how to do really anything in life is what we might simply call the watch and learn method. That is, you get around somebody who knows what they're doing, they then do that thing in front of you, you observe them, you watch them, and then, well, then you go and try it. That's a very proven method of teaching. It's a proven method of learning. You can learn a lot in a hurry that way. That, of course, is the whole idea behind student teaching, for example. That is, you get somebody who's maybe an inexperienced teacher, and you put them in the classroom with a very experienced teacher, somebody who's been doing that for a number of years, and that inexperienced teacher watches and observes, and they then learn from that experienced teacher. They figure out the ropes of how to teach in the classroom and all the things that go along with that. Or think as well about those ride-along programs that lots of police officers, police departments offer, even fire departments, and even some hospitals and ambulances, they offer that kind of thing. You take a seasoned police officer who's been on the job for a while, and then you take somebody who's maybe, maybe just a regular civilian, and you put them in a squad car, and they then ride around for the day, and they answer calls, and they go here, and they go there, and as a result, the person who's riding along with them, they, they kind of get exposed to the life of a police officer. They get to learn from that. They get to understand what it's all about. That's an awesome way to learn. Well, wouldn't it be cool if you could ride along with an apostle, if you could tag along with an apostle of the Lord in order to learn how to do evangelism, wouldn't that be great? What if, for example, we could ride along with the apostle Paul and we could just travel along with him from place to place and we could learn what it means to sow the seed of the kingdom? What if we could just kind of just, just absorb some of our time with Paul. We can just learn directly from somebody who does that evangelism thing very, very well. Would you be interested in that? I'd like to think that if the Apostle Paul were coming to Somerset, Kentucky, and he was going to be here this next weekend, and he was going to be conducting an evangelism workshop, and you can learn from the best about how to be more evangelistic from an apostle, I'd make time for that. I'd want to show up and be involved in that. What if Paul could help us to be more evangelistic as we try to lead others to Christ? Well, I should tell you this morning that I do not believe that Paul is going to be coming to Somerset anytime soon. 
Nor do I think that Paul is going to come and mount the pulpit this morning and overtake my PowerPoint slides and do all of that sort of stuff and train us personally, but, but maybe in a sense, maybe he is going to be able to do that for us. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 1 about being imitators of him as he's an imitator of Christ. Well, let's get around Paul this morning so that we can be an imitator of Him, and in so doing, be an imitator of Jesus Christ. Find in your Bible with me, Acts the 17th chapter. In Acts the 17th chapter, the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Athens. That was kind of the cultural capital of the world in the Roman Empire. Paul comes to that place, and what happens next is very much a model. It is a blueprint. It is a template for the kinds of things that you and I want to do so that we can indeed be like Paul. We can be imitators of Him. In fact, Acts 17, in a lot of ways, it is one of the best demonstrations of effective evangelism because Paul shows us not simply what to do, but even more than that, he demonstrates for us the kind of character that we need to have in order to lead others to Jesus. And so this morning... Let's just hop along. Let's jump into a chariot or whatever Paul maybe would have been riding around him. Maybe he was just doing that on foot. But we're going to tag along with him for a little while in the city of Athens and see what we can learn about being evangelistic. Read with me if you will. Let's set it up in Acts 17. I'm reading here beginning in verse 16. Acts 17 verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know therefore what these things mean. What a moment. Here is a Jew. And he is in the center, the center of one of the most Gentile cities in all of the known world at that time. And in the middle of what's going on in that pagan world, Paul is going to get the opportunity to talk to people about Christ. How in the world did that happen? You know, again, they invited him. How exactly was that possible? What made it so that Paul could sow the seed of the gospel in Athens, a city in a culture that I would suggest to you reminds me an awful lot of 21st century America? How was Paul able to get an audience with non-Christians and by the end of this chapter, some of those very people become Christians. Well, I believe that there are at least four things that we can learn from Paul's time in the city of Athens, four things that we can benefit and profit from, that we can just get some on-the-job training about if we'll watch, if we'll learn, if we'll soak all of that information in so that we can be more and more like Paul and in turn, we can be more and more like Christ. Are you ready for that? I'm ready to talk about that. Let's just begin that where it seems like where Paul had to begin all of that. And that begins by just talking a little bit about the importance 
of being courageous. I think the idea of courage is just oozing all from these verses in Acts chapter 17. Paul exhibits great courage throughout this entire episode. Let me see if maybe I could just kind of ratchet up the tension a little bit. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't really see why courage is all that big of a deal here. Well, let me explain to you why Paul is having to exhibit great courage here. Uh, Sometimes when we think about where Paul delivers this sermon, the Mars Hill sermon, maybe what we think of is we think of that place there up on the top of that hill where those big buildings are. We think of the Acropolis. That's where if you visited Athens in the first century where you would see the Parthenon, that big giant temple that was made and devoted to Athena, one of the goddesses of that time. In fact, you can travel down to Nashville and there is a replica of that very building, the Parthenon there. Well, that's actually not where Paul would have presented this particular sermon. Paul would have actually presented that sermon down here on this hill below it, that's a, it's about a couple of hundred yards away, that hill is what is sometimes referred to as Mars Hill or the Areopagus. There were stone steps that were cut right up the side of that hill. Those steps are actually there even to this day. And there's a flat place there on the top of that hill and that really kind of just served as what was essentially the city council chambers. There were some stone benches, a couple of stone lecterns set up. The council, the Areopagus as it was known, that's where Paul is standing. In fact, if you'll notice the language in verse 22, in verse 22 it says that Paul was standing in the midst of the Areopagus. I think this is not so much a geographical location because you don't really stand in the midst of a mountain. This is really describing a group of people. Paul is standing in the midst of this council, this gathering of individuals together. He's addressing what are essentially the town council, the important movers and shakers in Athens. He's talking to them about Jesus. Now you stop and think about that. What did it feel like for Paul to mount those steps and to then stand there in the midst of that group of people. Maybe a bunch of old white-headed or bald-headed men staring at him. They've all got their togas on or whatever you wore in Athens. And they're all just kind of quietly observing his mannerisms and the things that he's saying. What is Paul maybe thinking? What's going through his mind? Paul might be thinking, you know what, if this doesn't go well, these people might right here on the spot, they might just ban Christianity altogether. Here I've been talking about it down in the marketplace in the Agora, but you know what, they may not like me continuing to talk about this. They may decide to put a stop to that altogether. In fact, if they really don't like what they hear, they might chuck me in prison. They might even throw me to the lions. There could be a lot of bad things that could happen if the things that I say aren't presented well. Which means Paul could have done a number of things here. Paul could have just declined this invitation that he was extended. Paul could have said, you know, I, I appreciate the invitation, fellas. appreciate getting to talk to you all. But you know, I don't even think you'd really be interested in what I have to say, the teaching that I bring here. I, I'm just going to go ahead and leave town if that's okay. Paul could have said, hey, you know, your religion, my religion, it's kind of pretty much the same. You know, not a whole lot of differences there. You don't need to hear all of this. Paul could have done that. And so I think it would have been hard. I think it would have been very hard to come in the midst of that group of people and to talk to them about God. 
the God, the one true and living God, to talk about that to a group of people who believed in many gods. This polytheistic society that Athens was, that would have been especially hard to do that Considering that these are people who don't know anything about the Old Testament Scriptures, maybe they have some passing idea, but but they don't know the Scriptures. In fact, many of these people, many of these guys sitting here, probably don't even care about the Old Testament Scriptures. And yet, despite all of that, Paul gathers his courage and he says to these men, I'll accept your invitation. I'll gladly come and I'll share with you the good news. I'm suggesting to you this morning that this is exactly where it has to start for you and I in evangelism. You want to be like Paul? You want to be evangelistic? You want to try to lead others to Christ? We'll need to get our courage together. We'll have to be brave. We'll have to be bold for the Lord. All too often I fear that we're just, we're just afraid. We're afraid to say anything. We're afraid to ever speak up and to stand out. We're afraid sometimes even to accept invitations like this one. We're afraid of what might happen whenever we tell somebody that that we're a Christian or we go to this particular church or maybe when it gets to a point where we have to tell somebody that they are lost, that they're not a Christian. They're not going to like that. They're not going to receive that well. We are concerned that doing that kind of thing is going to end up straining friendships, that it'll end up making things really awkward. And so when it's all said and done, what we decide many times is, I'm just going to stay quiet. I'll just not say anything. Would you hold your place in Acts? Look with me in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy here. And notice what he says to him, his young brother, young preaching brother. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is verse 6. In 2 Timothy 1 and in verse 6, Paul says to him, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I wonder, is Paul saying something there to Timothy about fear? Because maybe Timothy had some fears. Maybe Timothy had some trouble with getting all the butterflies in his stomach to fly in perfect formation. And as a result, Timothy was a little bit nervous. Timothy was a little bit afraid. And it was preventing him from sometimes saying what needed to be said. I think sometimes what we're looking for is we're looking for those evangelistic opportunities that don't require any courage. You know what I'm talking about here? What we're looking for is we're looking for the next Cornelius. We're looking for somebody who already fears God, somebody who's already worshiping God, somebody who's very interested in doing what's right, somebody who's very sincere. We're looking for somebody where we can just kind of come along and just you know say a couple of words from the Bible and that person's just going to fall right into the baptistry. They're just going to slip on a banana peel and fall right into the water and they're going to be baptized and we're going to get all the credit for it. That's what we're looking for, but I would tell you this morning... We're just not probably not going to find that. I do believe that there are Corneliuses out there, but I don't think there's very many of them. I don't think that most of our interactions on a daily basis are going to be with the Corneliuses of this world. More often than not, our evangelistic opportunities are going to more closely resemble what we're looking at here in Acts the 17th chapter. And as a result, you and I are going to have to be determined to say, you know what, this might be difficult. 
This might be hard. My stomach may be knots and things going in a million different directions in there, but I'm going to get my courage together and I'm going to go say something for the Lord because somebody needs to say something. And I want you to see that as we turn back to Acts 17, that one of the keys to that is that God blesses that kind of courage. We see that in Paul's life. Did you notice that there? Look again at verse 17. In verse 17 of Acts 17, the text says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So, all right, there's some courage. He's talking to an audience of people who who at least are interested in God. People who do know something about the Old Testament Scriptures, but, but that still would have required some courage. Lots of Jews in New Testament times, they didn't accept the message of the Messiah, the message of Jesus as the Christ. And so that took some courage for Paul. But then after going to the synagogue, verse 17 continues on by saying, he then went to the marketplace every day, reasoning with the people who had to be there. I would suggest to you that would have took even more courage because that's where all the philosophers and all the smarty pantses of the world, all of those sorts of folks, they would have been and he would have been engaging them in that kind of religious dialogue. And so as a result of exercising some courage, verse part of verse 17, and then exercising even more courage, last part of verse 17, God then gives Paul the chance to exercise great courage when he stands here in the midst of the Areopagus. You want to be like Paul? Get your courage together. Start with just that little bit of courage like Paul did in Acts 17. And there's no telling the opportunities that God will grant if you'll be willing to step out on the limb and be bold for Jesus. Get your courage together. I would suggest to you though, it's not just courage that Paul demonstrates and shows us in Acts 17. Let's keep reading a little bit. Look in verse 22. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's just start, start work right there for a moment. When we think of evangelism today, I fear that oftentimes what we picture in our minds is we picture some kind of a big debate, some kind of a big argument, some big religious fight with another person. Especially whenever I say the stuff about courage, well, I need to get my courage together because we're going into a battle. We're going into a war, so I need all the courage that I can get. We're going to show this person how we're so right and they're so wrong. And man, it's just going to be a knockdown, dragout fight. That's not how Paul approaches things in Athens. In verse 22, what Paul does is he starts by saying something about the religion of the Athenians. In fact, what Paul does is he actually pays them a compliment. He actually commends them for the things that they are doing right. Paul says, you folks... You are very religious. Now, he's not endorsing their religion, but he is impressed with the fact that they have some sense for the divine. He's talking to a bunch of pagan people here. He's talking to idol idol worshippers here. And what Paul says is he actually says some nice things. He says, hey, I've seen all of your objects of worship here in town. I've been here for a little bit and... Yeah, you're very, very religious. In fact, one of your idols, one of your, one of your statues, it really caught my attention. I, I, really, I really am interested in that. In fact, I'd like to talk to you about that. 
I think this is a very different approach to evangelism than what we oftentimes are led to believe today. I fear that if this had been me, I fear that I would have said the wrong things. I fear I would have just slipped right there into Athens and I would have started by saying, you bunch of dumb pagans falling down and worshiping you know, statues made out of stone or wood or brick or some other kind of earthly material. I mean, that's just really, really stupid. I'm afraid I would have said that. Or maybe what I would have began by saying, as I normally do, good evening everybody, good evening. If you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Oh, you don't have a Bible. <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do for you since you don't have a Bible to follow along. Maybe I would have just blasted them just right out of the gate. Everybody here is just going to burn in hell for all of eternity if you don't listen to what I'm saying right now, if you don't respond to Jesus before the time I'm done talking. I'm afraid that's the way that I would have approached that. But not Paul. Paul doesn't start there. Paul begins by trying to make a connection with these people. Paul tries to find to say something good about their current religious beliefs. Not everything about these people's religion was wrong. Now, I want to be clear. This is certainly not to say that all religions are, are equal. They most certainly are not. And this is not to say that you can be saved in any religion that you choose. You cannot. All religions are not equal. There is no other name under heaven given among, uh, given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus and there's nothing like pure, simple, New Testament Christianity, and we need to help people to understand that. But because God made man with a spiritual nature, we have a yearning for the divine, something that is beyond us, something that is outside of this world. Oftentimes, even when people get worship wrong, there are still some elements there that are right, and they are some elements that we can then build upon. And so, for example, in Acts 17, these people, well, they're worshiping. I mean, that's something, right? They at least have a concept of worship. These people are trying to know God, or at least whatever their image and understanding of a divine being was. They believed in God. That's certainly better than being an atheist, isn't it? That's certainly better than being just completely militant against the idea of a divine being. And so Paul's looking for something that maybe they have in common with his beliefs. He's building a bridge to those people so that he can then walk truth across that bridge to help them to understand better. We talk about a blueprint for us today. When we identify some things that we hold in common with others, that seizes people's attention. That gains a person an audience with folks. Paul's saying to these folks in Athens, hey, I'm like you in a sense. We're all in this together. We're all interested in spiritual things. Let's talk about spiritual things. In fact, look at verse 23. In verse 23, the words that Paul says here, he says, I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. Just look at how that just would hook the interest of these Athenians. His whole presentation now is going to have this audience in the palm of his hand. He's not up here talking to them about something that they've never even heard before, like, like Jesus, who he will allude to at the end of this sermon. He's not talking to them from the Old Testament passages and scriptures that they would have had no familiarity with at all. Instead, what he's doing is he's talking to them about their life and their world and things that were within their frame of reference. That holds interest. 
That's what makes what he's saying relevant and important to these people. He's got a foothold with them instead of just launching into some blanket condemnation and turning all these people away. I think we ought to learn something from that. We ought to gain something from that. What is it about evangelism that makes us think that the best way to lead people to Christ is just start tearing them down and insulting people's deeply held religious convictions? Do you know anybody that thinks really clearly and straightly whenever they've been worked up and been tore up and they're all upset and angry? I don't know anybody that thinks really clearly when they're worked up that way. Whatever somebody believes, whether that's Catholicism or Buddhism or Islam or some other thing in the denomination of work, it doesn't matter. We're not going to gain an audience with anybody when we treat people's beliefs like they're just silly and ignorant and foolish. We can do like Paul did. We just say, hey, there's, there's something to what you believe. There's some things there that I think are right and we can build upon. And I'm going to go looking for that thing, whatever it is with the person that I'm talking to, buried maybe underneath all kinds of layers upon layers of raw, I'm going to find those commonalities and then build upon them. You believe in God? Great! I believe in God. You believe in the Bible? Hey, that's awesome. I believe in the Bible. Can we talk about the Bible? You believe in this or you believe in that? Hey, I believe in those things too. Let's work together. In fact, lots of passages in the Bible talk about that attitude. Would you grab a couple with me? Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, notice what Peter says in verse 15. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and in verse 15, this ought to be a you know, semi-famous verse for those of us here at Lakeside. It's out on the sign. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, but honor in your hearts, excuse me, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Notice this now. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let me add to that what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verses 24 and 25, Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I'm certainly not suggesting to you this morning that there is never a time for formal religious debate. I think there is a place for that. And I'm certainly not saying that we should not press the truth and press it vigorously. We should. But I also think that the South Central Kentucky translation of 2 Timothy 2.24 says, don't fuss with people. That's what the Bible's saying. And do you know the difference between fussing with folks and trying to gently teach someone the gospel of Christ? There's a big difference in those two things. And if we don't know the difference in those two things, we need to watch Paul in Acts 17 and we need to learn from Paul. Paul began by building some common ground and treating people with dignity and kindness as he said some things about their religion that then opened up the door for him to say even more. Which is exactly what happens next in our text as you turn back to Acts chapter 17. That's where the sermon goes because what Paul does next is he just starts right where people are and he starts with what those folks are already interested in. Paul says something about that unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that unknown God in verse 23. Now verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. 4 verse 28, In Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or any image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's just a great sermon. It's a simple sermon. Paul's words just work right there where those people are talking about the things that they can relate to and the things that they're interested in. You know, I saw an ad the other day, or a little while back. It was for a, a workbook that you could use when studying with folks about the Bible. And the ad said something along the lines of, do you want to share the gospel but you can't answer people's tough questions? Well, this is an easy-to-use workbook that will answer people's questions who are seeking Jesus. I thought, well, man, that... That sounds pretty good. Kind of just compile all the questions folks think of. Just kind of work with somebody through that. Then I got down to reading in the fine print and it said 38 individual studies. 38 studies, 38 lessons. Wow. Imagine going up to somebody. Hey, I don't know if you're interested in Jesus or not, but would you be willing to give me, I don't know, the rest of your life to study these 38 lessons with you? That's an awful lot to ask of somebody. Something about that seems kind of problematic in our world. Well, what we need to do is we need to try to take some small steps to build a bridge into folks' lives instead of just trying to make folks into some kind of Bible scholar. I think it's important for us to see here in Acts chapter 17 that Paul does not say, all right, everybody, let's start by learning the books of the Bible. That's not how Paul starts. Paul does not start by saying, hey, fellas, I've got 38 lessons for you. Let's begin there. No. Instead, Paul starts by talking about what they're interested in. Finding out who God is. Worshiping God. He helps them with the very most relevant issues to them in that moment in their lives, which is what they need to know. They need to know about the God who created everything. And so Paul just works with that. He just stays with that. He doesn't, maybe one of the most impressive things here is how Paul doesn't get off topic. Doesn't start chasing a bunch of rabbits about, well, let me talk to you about instrumental music. Or let me talk to you about women preachers. That, that's not what Paul does here. He keeps things tightly focused here. He talks, verse 24, about the God who made the world. How He's not served by human hands, verse 25. How you cannot find Him in temples because He is greater than that. Verse 26, how this God, He made from every nation, all of mankind. And if God made everyone and everything, then, then how can we imagine that we're going to build some kind of a thing, some kind of an object that's going to be able to contain God? He's bigger than that. And so what we need to do is we need to seek after Him. And why, verse 27? Because He's actually not far from us. He's actually very close. In fact, look at the quotation that Paul uses in verse 28. In your Bible, that might be kind of set off. It's kind of indented in my Bible and it's put in quotations to let us know that this is a little bit different here. The quotation there in verse 28, that we are indeed His offspring, that is not a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul's very adept at quoting from the Old Testament Scriptures, but that's not what this is. This is actually a quote 
from one of their very own poets, a secular poet. In fact, the second quote is a quotation from a hymn, of a hymn to Zeus. And Paul takes a line from that hymn and he kind of turns it and uses it to talk about the God of heaven. But Paul is working right where these people are. And so verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. That would have been some really strong words to have to say in Athens where idols are literally everywhere. The city is just filled with them. But it is the logical conclusion to the things that Paul has been piecing together. That, hey, this is what I know that you know already. And here's some things that I know that you're interested in. Now let's just maybe just kind of take that, a couple of another logical steps, and let's see if we can grow in our understanding about the Lord. I'm impressed with that. I'm impressed with the way that Paul stays on topic. The sermon doesn't wander around everywhere. He does not try to entertain every doctrine that needs to be understood. Paul doesn't veer off on some kind of mini-sermon over here or go off on a tangent about that. And notice as well how Paul doesn't get all technical about things. Paul doesn't say, hmm, offspring. Here's what you guys mean it in the Greek, but let me talk to you about what that word means in the Hebrew. Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't do that. Paul just talks about God. How God is the Creator. How that's connected. That's powerful. That's relevant. It's interesting. It starts where people are and it keeps things tightly focused there. If we're being honest, I think sometimes when we have evangelistic conversations with people, that's very hard for us. Because instead of starting where people are, just jumping right in exactly where they are at that point in their life, their circumstances and their understanding, what we want to do is we want to come to them and we want to give them our presentation, our prepackaged understanding of the Word of God and God's plan of salvation, and we want to tell them the way that we want to tell them the gospel. And what we want them to do is we want them to just kind of just be quiet and open up their brain hole and let us just fill their brain with all this stuff that we've already come to understand. And as a result, sometimes it's hard for us to stay as focused as Paul was. And that's because we do like to chase after those theological rabbits. People start asking questions and we start zigging over here and zagging over there. And the end result of all of that is, yeah, we talked about a lot of religious stuff, but... But we didn't really accomplish a whole lot. Nothing really, nothing really, really even happened in all of that. In fact, sometimes we chase those rabbits because we're, well, we're uncomfortable with having to get to the point that we're really going to have to get to, and that is to talk to these people about the fact that they are lost, that they are outside of Christ, that the church that they are a part of has no place in New Testament Christianity. And so we're trying to avoid that at all costs. And as a result, we never really talk with them about the most important things of all. Remember that woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus talks with her, starts talking about water. But pretty soon, Jesus begins to home in on her situation. And before long, that woman is ready to kind of divert the whole discussion. She's ready to start talking about things like how many angels can dance on the, pen of, you know, on the head of a pen. Or, you know, hey, could God ever make a rock that's so heavy that He's not able to actually lift it? And she's asking questions like, hey, let's talk about where it is that we're supposed to worship. Is it this mountain or that mountain? Jesus is not going to have any of that. Jesus wants to laser in on her and her situation. And that is what people want to do, try to kind of derail the conversation, steer things away from the uncomfortable, personal implications of the gospel. What Jesus shows us, what Paul shows us, is we need to keep it tightly focused. Hey, we're talking about God here. We're talking about who God is. 
We're talking about who we are in relation to God. We're talking about how we can serve God. We're talking about the God who made us and what that God expects from us. We start where people are. We need to stay focused on what they're interested in and not go chasing off on everything else in the world. Which then leads Paul finally to verses 30 and 31 where he's able to get down to some brass tacks and he shows us the importance of not compromising the truth of the gospel. I'm reading now in verse 30. Paul then says, here's kind of the final application then of the sermon. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Verse 32 now, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. You know, when you read this sermon, it kind of just reads very differently than a lot of Paul's other sermons. For example, whenever Paul goes into a Jewish synagogue, Paul talks about Jesus and says his name like a zillion times because he wants those Jews to understand that Jesus is the Christ. But this is a very different sermon. And that's because it's a very different audience. But in the end, the sermon still comes out at the same place that all of sermons that Paul preached came out to. And that is that God made us. And so God expects us to serve Him. And if we're not doing that, then we need to repent. And the reason we need to repent is because there's coming a day when we're all going to be raised from the dead and we all will have to stand before Him in final judgment. And we need to be ready for that. Paul knew that some would appreciate that truth. Paul also knew that others would not appreciate that truth. But it really didn't make any difference at the end of the day because Paul's job remained exactly the same. And that is, teach people the uncompromised truth. And the fact is, that's yours and I, that's, that's our job even today. Doesn't matter whether people accept it. Doesn't matter whether people reject it. Our job is exactly the same. To present to people the plain, unadulterated truth of Scripture. And why is that so important? Well, because as Jesus Himself said in John 8 verse 32, that it is the truth that will set you free. When we're in evangelistic conversations, when we have opportunities to talk to people about the Lord, at some point, I'm not saying we need to do it at the jumping off point, but at some point, we're going to have to look that person in the eye and we're going to have to point to the text of Scripture and we're going to have to say, this is you. This is talking about what you need to do. This is identifying some things that are amiss in your life. You need to take this truth and you need to implement it into your life. You need to change how you are doing business with the Lord. And in that moment, yes, our mouth is going to get dry and there's going to be butterflies trying to flutter all around inside of our stomach. And in that moment, it'll become very easy for us to rationalize and decide, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of shave back a little bit kind of cut some corners with the presentation of that truth, just water it down, dilute it down a little bit. And when we are thinking in those terms, what we need to do is we need to remember Paul standing on Mars Hill in the midst of that Areopagus. And we need to remember how Paul in that moment got great courage gathered together and said, you guys need to repent because judgment day is coming. And I want to remind you that not compromising the gospel, that does not mean we're going to blast people. 
Doesn't mean we're just going to start tearing into folks, being rude to people, start just condemning folks to hell. No, we've already seen Paul, Paul didn't do that. Paul instead made every effort to try to connect with people and to not intentionally make them mad. Paul did make people mad from time to time, but I don't think he ever did that intentionally. And I want you to notice that the people who rejected the gospel there in verse 32, they weren't rejecting it because Paul had some kind of arrogant and ugly personality. No. They are rejecting the truth. Paul presented the truth to them in a kind and courteous way and if they rejected it, that was going to be on them. In fact, whenever the truth is presented in that kind of uncompromising but caring way, notice what else can happen. Verse 33, finish the text. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There's always the temptation to water down the gospel, to tell people that, oh, there's a wonderful place called heaven, but never say anything about hell. To speak wonderfully and glowingly of the love of God, but to never say anything about the wrath and severity of God. To tell folks about how God wants you to be happy, yet never clue folks into the fact that true happiness only comes by being obedient to Him. None of that's going to help folks get to heaven. None of that's going to help folks be prepared for the judgment that verse 31 talks about. Repentance. Judgment. Ultimately, that's what evangelism all comes down to. And that's exactly what Paul's modeling for us here. If we're simply destined to just become dust and nothing more than... Well, then in reality, it doesn't matter how you live. But if there is more to our existence than that, then we do need to prepare and we need to encourage other folks to prepare for what comes next. And that's what Paul shows us in Acts the 17th chapter. And that's what you and I need to do if we're going to share the gospel with the people that we love. And so I'll say once again this morning, no, Paul's not scheduled to come to Somerset anytime soon to my knowledge. And it's probably not as impressive for us to to read through Acts the 17th chapter as we have, then it would be if we could actually be physically present right next to Paul, riding along with him, tagging along with him. That would be really cool. But this is what we have. And so in Paul's desire for us to imitate him, what he has done is he has left for us a powerful blueprint that we can model our lives after so that we can indeed reach lost souls. And we may not always be as, as smooth as Paul was, as quick thinking as Paul was. But I'll tell you this, the more you do it, the better you get at it. The more practice, the more windshield time that you get, the more experienced you become, the more natural, the easier it is to engage with people about the very most important things in life. And that's the matters of the soul, the matters of being prepared for the day of eternity. We're extending the invitation of Jesus Christ with those very same thoughts in mind. It is our plea to you, if you are not yet prepared for that day when all the dead shall rise, when God has appointed a man, Jesus, who will serve as a righteous judge on that day, if you're not prepared for that moment, that moment of accounting when you stand before the Lord on high, this is our plea to you to get ready for that to do that today. There is a God and He does have expectations for you. He wants us to serve Him. And He's not far from us. He's, 
He's very near to us, actually. The question is, are you seeking after Him? If this morning, if you do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you're willing to confess that with your lips, if you're willing to then act upon that by repenting, turning away from sin and turning to the Lord, making a change of mind that leads to a change of life, if you'll then be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, then today you can come up out of that water something brand new. A Christian, somebody who's ready for that eternity in heaven. If you are a child of God but you've not been living right, then brother or sister, this invitation it goes for you as well. It's about being prepared for the moment when we see Jesus face to face. If you're not ready for that, you need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you so that all of us can indeed be ready for that great and final day. Whatever your need may be this morning, you simply need to come to the front. Make that known. We're ready to help you. Do something about it right now while we stand and while we sing.